Once a year, our agency does something particularly brave. We actually predict the future. Released at the top of the year, our Red Sky Predictions report forecasts 10 trends we expect to drive change throughout the global communications and PR landscape. These predictions represent the collective insight of top minds from around Red Havas's 10 markets. We like to think that the report has become required reading for our industry. This year, the stakes were higher and the assignment more daunting. We looked at everything through the lens of the pandemic. How had it forever changed the digital and social media space? What about healthcare and technology, the workplace and travel? Of course, we don't believe in simply flinging predictions into the universe. It's important to us to return to the predictions we made to see how and if they're unfolding. In this episode of Red Sky Fuel for Thought, our roundtable discussion takes a look at how our predictions are playing out and what they mean for communications and PR in 2022. Then we will welcome Alicia Gibson Wright, Executive Vice President at Red Havas Health for our Red Questionnaire. But first, let's get our roundtable discussion underway. Joining the conversation are some of the architects of these trends, including James Wright, Global CEO of Red Havas and Global Chairman of the Havas PR Global Collective. Davitha Tiller, our Executive Vice President of Social and Integration. And Steve Fontenot, Managing Director at Red Havas Australia. Now, Linda Descano, Executive Vice President of Red Havas US, will get our conversation underway. James Davs Fonti, welcome to the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast today. Um, James, we want to ground our conversation today, starting with you. Give us the lowdown on the 2021 Red Sky Predictions Report. What is it? What do we cover? What's it used for? So we produce a Red Sky Fuel for Thought uh, white paper every year. It's a, it's a report on the trends and some of the predictions that we have for the upcoming year. We, we sort of uh, produce it or begin producing it the middle of the year before we start talking to clients, to colleagues all around the world, uh, looking at reports and research and other trends that we're seeing in the market and look at how that's going to affect the communications and PR landscape. And when it gets to sort of, I guess, sort of October, November, we start to hone those into you know, usually around about 10 sort of predictions. Uh, and last year, we had a number of them that have really um, traveled uh, really well this year in terms of uh, coming to light and, and becoming a reality. Uh, everything from uh, the, the Vax influencer and the development of that, how mental health has come to the fore, how em um, employees have become more and more empowered and the rise of the empowered employee. So lots of interesting subjects to get into today. Um, but yeah, we produce this every every year, and it's always amazing just to look back um, after you know, six or nine months of the year and, and see which of these subjects have really, I guess, taken off. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the trend around the Vax Influencer because that we talked about on the heels of how successful influencers were um, in the U.S. getting out the vote for the presidential election. So, Davs, tell us, you know, have the Vax Influencers used their influence for good? Have they been successful at, you know, their get out, get the vaccine type of messaging? Yeah, I mean, this trend has been on fire. We have seen news on this one almost every day. So it's been super interesting to watch. 
everything from your standard micro to macro influencers that we've seen in the social sphere, you know, talking about the vaccine, of course, and uh, vouching for it or not. Um, of course, there's conversations on both sides. But then also, uh, just yesterday, there was news breaking through uh, about the US government and, you know, the White House actually engaging a whole set of uh, celebrities and social media influencers to talk about the vaccine and particularly to reach that younger demographic. So those 12 to 18 year olds uh, across the country that are, you know, still on the fence uh, and need a bit of convincing. We've also seen um, the French president, Macron, he's done uh, a whole bunch of Q&A on the vaccine on TikTok. So, you know, finding those those influential channels, again, with that younger audience specifically uh, to cut through and kind of um, start to convince them to, to take the shot. So definitely a trend that has uh, gone big. And I think we're also seeing right in many like local communities at the county level in the, the states, um, working with um, community leaders as micro influencers, right? And how do you reach, you know, maybe historically marginalized or hard to reach communities and getting the word out about the vaccine? Is that something you're seeing in, in multiple areas? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, the latest example of that was uh, in Colorado, um, the uh, Power the Comeback campaign that they've launched there. And that's really focusing on target, uh, targeting that audience that, you know, is uh, kind of a bit more on the fence. So they're very much focused on Latino, um, Native American, Asian, and other communities of color that historically have been underserved when it comes to healthcare um, and really are the focus of, of those agencies, you know, trying to raise vaccination rates up. Um, so very interesting to see how they're using digital channels specifically to, to get those messages out there. So I want to turn to um, the mental health, uh, James, which you you mentioned in, in the setup. You know, certainly on the heels of um, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles and their decisions to step away from some sports com uh, competition uh, for mental health reasons, um, I recently did uh, interviewed about 15 communications executives from an array of companies and everyone put mental health, mental wellness at the top of their agenda for talking to employees. That was a little bit, how are you seeing this play out, you know, globally in terms of how companies are responding to the rising concerns around mental health and well-being? Well, a little bit like the VACS influencer sort of prediction last year. I mean, remember, this was, we were putting this together about a year ago. So this was before kind of, it, it really kind of started to take hold. There was a lot of interest and there has been a lot of interest globally in, in, in mental health. In some parts of the world, it's been more at the forefront than others. But certainly now in the US, it's becoming a big focus, particularly in the last 12 months. And the pandemic, I guess, has accelerated that, you know, where, where both, um, you know, Family and friends are more concerned uh, and openly concerned about uh, each other and, and their own mental wellness, but also um, increasingly so in the workplace. And it comes up all the time with our clients and also when we look at our own agencies and, and we look at how we're looking after our, our team members. And so that's a, it's good that those kind of barriers are, break, uh, are being broken down. It, it's still, I would say, work in progress in terms of getting to uh, getting past that stigma of talking about mental health. I mean, we, the way I look at it is that, you know, mental health should be, uh, be viewed in the same realm as physical health. You know, um, we, we want to be healthy and fit. And if you want to be healthy and fit, you've got to go, um, 
you know, to the gym or you've got to go, you've got to work out regularly. And similarly, so with your mental health, you've got to be able to regularly work those um, mental muscles. And that means being more comfortable talking about how you're feeling, whether that's with family, friends, with colleagues or whoever it is that you feel comfortable doing so with. Uh, and the more we break that down, the better we will be. But, you know, from a, a as a sort of, you know, business leader, you know, we know that that if our of our staff are are performing, you know, um, well, that's because they're feeling feeling good and they're feeling well. So not just in terms of supporting them from a physical health, but also from a, a mental health perspective. And you've just seen you know, tens and dozens of of, uh, of different mental health initiatives and mental fitness initiatives coming out all over uh, all over corporate America, all over you know uh, Europe, across Asia Pacific too. Uh, whether that's embracing um, <clears throat> Uh, apps like Headspace and others, or whether it's um, actually giving people extra time to to rejuvenate themselves, you know, lots of different initiatives happening, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. certainly, and I think one of the other interesting things has been the three sixty degree approach to wellness over the past year, like mind, body, and spirit, and that becoming part of the lexicon in some of the the corporate initiatives around wellness. So let's stay on the topic of the workplace for another moment. Um, another one of our predictions was that there would be a rebalancing of the employment contract in 2021 as employees continue to push for more transparency and accountability from their senior leaders about what are they saying externally, whether it's issues of diversity and inclusion or climate or social justice versus what are they doing internally. And after last week's walkout at Activision, I would say employees are feeling more empowered than ever. So James, what are you seeing? Would you agree that this continues to evolve and employees are continuing to set higher expectations about what their companies are doing on these issues? Absolutely. I think this has been a seminal moment, really, in employees feeling empowered to have their say about how an organization is run and the organization that they work for is run, um, whether that's in terms of how the organization runs itself or how the organization um, is supporting the issues that they care about. So um, that that really has certainly come to the fore in the last sort of uh, 12 to 18 months, whether that's been, as you say, about issues that, that have come come to the table in the past, like climate change and other issues around sustainability, but particularly around uh, equality and justice. And then even actually, as it comes through into um, uh, the approach to the pandemic and how their organization is supporting uh, the communities in which they operate. And I think that's been a, you know, that's been a good thing. Holding their, you know, businesses to account, um, I think is, 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 is always encouraging to see that they care and are passionate about the business that they work for, that they want that business to be doing more. I mean, you saw with the with the George Floyd murder, particularly in America, where you know it was no longer acceptable not to have a point of view as a as a as an organization in the US, particularly the big organizations. There was an expectation that you came out to um, in support of equality and justice, and in support of seeking justice for George Floyd and his family, and you know the many others who've had similar, you know, situations, uh, you, know, you know, horrible situations that have happened to them. And so that, I think, um, is something that has been good to hold our, our businesses accountable and, and long way, hopefully it will continue. Obviously, you know, with, with reasonable, um, within reason and with, with respect. So we, 
we want to see more of um, of that. I think in well, we're going to see more of that in the future. And I think you know organisations have already pivoted to ensure that they've got more feedback uh, opportunities for staff. You know, you've seen new roles. I mean, there's been an explosion in DEI roles that have um, that have come into organisations in the last twelve months, in particular. Uh, and you know, I just think that's going to continue. Uh, and one of the things that came up in the conversations I've been having with communications leaders is the shift to more informal Q&A types of webcasts with employees and creating these sessions like Ask Me Anything where they're thematic and really talking about um, these issues, giving employees a, a space to express um, concerns they have, expectations, discuss what the company is doing and uh, breaking down some of the, the barriers and the misperceptions. Um, and, and this is something that almost every executive I spoke with said they plan to continue and double down on. And that they're, you know, after having so many conversations this past year, employees have a, a lot of hunger and an appetite to continue that level of dialogue and be part of the solution, working hand in hand um, with, uh, you know, the, the, the corporate sustainability, corporate purpose teams on how they can find more solutions. And, and Linda, I think these, because the expectation has now sort of kicked on so much further than it was, you know, 12 or even 18 months ago, particularly in corporate America, where, you know, we've talked a lot about this uh, within the agency and, and also on this podcast, where you know, we need to move beyond just making pledges, but actually talking about the progress we've made against those pledges. So it's no longer just good enough to say, we're committed to this, we're committed to that, but it's actually what actions and progress have we made against these specific pledges. And that's really where they're being held, where, you know, where corporate America is being held much more accountable. We saw this um, in probably the last sort of decade where you know, uh, shareholder activism has really become you know, a big factor in decisions that are made by businesses, but now the employee factor comes up a lot. And you know, to your point, you know, we speak to clients all the time, they're very concerned about how do we keep that uh, dialogue and ongoing dialogue with their with their teams going because um, it's become such a big play in in terms of motivating staff in terms of the success of the business to keep you know those um, you know also who are essentially brand advocates and brand ambassadors you know every single employee you have is a brand ambassador brand advocate not just um, wanting you as a business to 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 make that kind of progress but also actually to be proud to work for you and to be able to actually go out and say hey the organization i work for is doing all of these incredible things you know i'm really proud of it you know yes we probably can still do more but hey we're heading in the right direction yeah and to build on what you've just said the other trend that i've been noticing is a shift to you know while there still is a formal you know sustainability or esg type report that companies are publishing having a more concerted communications effort around um, these issues throughout the year and proactively reminding employees of what our priorities were, what, what were the commitments we, we made, how are we tracking against them and increasing the transparency with that idea that if employees don't know, they may not assume the best, but if you can keep employees engaged and involved and help them understand where you're moving, they can be more thoughtful, supportive, ambassadors and are coming with you on the journey and not just hearing about these issues um, once a year. Well, I know we can continue to talk about this, but we have to move on. So I want to shift gears a bit and 
and talk about how brands are engaging with their consumers and customers. And, you know, we had a prediction that brands would be would be creating more meaningful experiences, leveraging not just the physical environment, but really hybrid environments and making sort of more opportunity to create a, a, a you know, a full sensory experience. So Fonty, returning it over to you, fill us in. Um, what are you seeing brands do in this, you know, shifting environment? Hi, Linda. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. Thank you. Um, wow. I mean, the pandemic really has impacted everyone in so many ways. Um, and if I move off the the, the, per, the people aspect for a moment onto, onto brand experience, um, you know, obviously when the pandemic hit and, and shutdowns occurred, uh, it, it meant that the physical or traditional experiential work came to a screeching halt um, quite literally overnight. Um, and so what it meant is that a whole bunch of people in our industry had to start moving forward in a you know in a faster fashion than they had been today it's um not a new trend this this hybrid of physical and digital you know this idea around digital um came up a bunch of years ago by a mate of mine based out of the states and uh if gosh i think that was probably 10 to 12 years ago that he came up with that sort of an idea um but i think that just different markets have caught on to that in different ways right and what it meant was that the pandemic almost was a bit of an equalizer or an equal reset moment for the world in brand experience to say, okay, we need to now progress this because we can't physically get together. So we have to use digital ways to be able to do it. Um, there are some markets like, for example, Japan, who has been in this space for a lot longer or, or blending physical and digital for a long time. I remember going to Tokyo back in 2002, I think it was, and getting my little stamp in my passport, and it was a QR code, and I don't think I'd ever seen one before. And I remember thinking, what on hell's earth is that? Um, and look at us now, we're using them all every day to sign into places to, to do contactless and, and et cetera. So there are some markets who are, who are ahead of the curve when it came to sort of blending those two together, but it meant that uh, we had to all sort of catch up um, to those different markets. If I look at just those sort of blending those areas, You've got um, a few really good examples that that came out last year. I mean, uh, if, if anyone saw the Travis Scott um, concert that happened, so Travis Scott um, did a concert inside uh, Fortnite. So it's one of those ideas that became one of the most talked about digital experiences of 2020. So back in April last year, when most people were still trying to figure out how to work Microsoft Teams or Zoom, um, Epic Games invited all Fortnite players to attend a 15-minute concert inside the game um, with 45 million people. So it was a larger-than-life avatar of Travis Scott who performed um, against a futuristic psychedelic backdrop. Um, and uh, the show was a genuine spectacle. So it was, I guess, arguably as impressive as a main stage performance or a physical live performance um, and attracted a way, way bigger audience. So... When, when that launched, it felt like it was a taster of what could come or what would come um, as, as brands and artists figured out how to sort of start blending um, experiences or having these more hybrid experiences. I think during the pandemic, just because physical itself in most markets was impossible, we went, the pendulum shifted completely from physical to digital. But then over these, Lord, as sort of restrictions are easing, easing up across the world, world it's the pendulum starting to swing back to have this more of a hybrid moment 
Um, another really great example of that pendulum swinging back is uh, the Van Gogh Live sensory experience that's touring the world at the moment. It's, it's in Australia. I got to see it uh, late last year. This whole idea of blending the senses together um, where you go through this physical experience where it's not just sight and touch, it's smell and sound and like it's engaging all of these senses. Um, uh, the only one it didn't really hit was taste, but I got something in the gift shop to take care of that. Um, but it, it really is an exciting time in the world of brain experience because I think it's forced us to get clever, to evolve, to be more interesting and to help our clients engage in a much more deeper way. Um, brain experiences have always been a wonderful thing. Clearly, I'm addicted to them because of this fact that they bring people on a much closer journey and a much more meaningful experience with brands. And so this can only be a good thing. No, I, I love that. And what do you think about the habits we've created, you know, over the course of the pandemic, right? Curbside pickup, to your point, using QR codes for menus instead of printed menus, telehealth visits, not just for people, but I, I saw there, there's an increase in telehealth even for our fur babies. Um, do you think these habits are going to be sticky as we come into whatever the next normal is? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think so because I feel like, you know, <clears throat> when these were crafted, they were a trend, whereas now they've just become what we do. Um, they've become convenience, right? It's, it's, it's like the idea of um, internet banking before anyone was doing it. You know, would that, would that catch on? And now the idea of not having internet banking is like, what? What are you talking about? I have to go into a branch and do stuff and talk to people. You crazy? Um, so I think that that they've gone from being a trend to just being what's expected. Um, and certainly, again, depending on what market you're in is depending on how advanced uh, people and, and brands are on that journey. Um, I think Australia is, you know, it's a small country compared to the United States in terms of population, um, as well as, you know, continental Europe, et cetera. And there are just some advantages to that, I suppose. If I look at just at our banking industry, there's four big banks and, you know, <clears throat> a bunch of smaller banks, but all independent or publicly owned, sorry, all publicly owned or, or member-based banks, no real independent banks. We look at the states where it's just a massive amount of banks, including private ones. I bring up that example because I remember being in the States only <clears throat> months before the pandemic started, I think four months, so end of 2019, and then the year before that as well. And, I, you know, in Australia, we've had for a long time this pay wave or pay pass where you don't actually insert your card. You just go to pay and you just tap your card and move on. <clears throat> and I remember being in the States and I saw that they had pay wave on their little payment systems and I went to tap them and every, every retail assistant was saying, what are you doing? Like, you got to insert your card. And I'm like, no, no, this is called PayWave. And they hadn't seen it before, um, which was kind of crazy to me because the infrastructure was there. It's just that it hadn't caught on yet or that the banks themselves hadn't actually implemented those, those sort of pieces. So I think that um, depending on where you are is depending on where, where that, those contactless um, trends, uh, so those contactless processes are. But Everyone during COVID just had to catch up, right? The idea of actually having contact with anyone or anything just kind of sent us all into a bit of a, a shiver or a panic. So I think contactless has gone from being a trend now to being what's expected. Um, curbside pickup, 
for sure. I mean, that's just called convenience, right? Or or deliveries, um, uh, un unsupervised deliveries, or pay pass systems, or QR codes. Um, I remember, you know, years years ago. I think it was about twelve years ago, working on a campaign for Australia's biggest telco, where they were trying to get QR codes to be uh, part of the norm in Australia. And boy, did they spend a lot of time, and boy, did they spend a lot of money trying to make QR codes the thing that people use. And they just didn't catch on because they were confusing. No one understood it. Why am I scanning for what purpose? It was just a way too early in what people wanted to use in Australia. But as I said, eight years or so before that in Japan, they were used for quite literally everything, including your uh, your visa stamp and your passport. So yeah, to, to your question about contactless, it's I think it's not a trend. It's now moved into what's expected. Yeah, I think it's it's moved on massively, hasn't it? Again, it, it's another one of those trends that has accelerated so hugely through, through the pandemic. And it's certainly true to say that the, the QR code uh, was saved uh, dramatically by COVID-19 has now seen such a huge resurgence. But also, I think businesses are recognizing the, the money-saving potential of that, or at least in terms of um, the, the the ease in which it, it gives them. I mean, you know, look at restaurants now, they're not printing menus, you know, you can mm. go and you can check the QR code, um, etc. But I do think it, it then it then makes, uh, I think, business more creative in the experience that they have physically. So, you know, is it this now really the final death knoll in the high street or main street, um, you know, for retailers? Well, I think there's always going to be a role for retailers. It's going to be down to how they can bring to life their experience. And of course, bars and restaurants will will be around uh, always in the entertainment venues, whether that's, you know, movie theatres, um, you know, Broadway or the West End, whatever. Uh, but how do you get people into stores that are so easy to, um, to or much easier now to buy online? And, you know, things like things like supermarkets, um, uh, sort of fashion wear, um, pharmacies, et cetera. How do you how do you bring that experience to life in a, in a much stronger and more creative way that people actually you actually end up becoming a destination more than just a, a transactional um, shop or retailer, you know, that's that's going to be the key. I think, you know, one of those just before the pandemic, you know, you saw some of the some sort of some of the big tech companies start to open up, like Amazon started to open up bookstores and really tried try to generate the experience inside them so that that actually became a bit of a destination to go to. And of course, Apple had uh, has its own approach to that and has done a great job in terms of Apple stores. So um, I think you know the experience has become more and more crucial to 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 winning the sort of hearts and minds of consumers i mean we we're human beings right we regardless of of, of convenience we'll always crave connection physical connection with other human beings it's that's why we are what we are and so the idea of of uh the the these contactless uh technology sort of pieces Preventing that, I don't think it's going to stop that. I just see it as a convenience piece for sure. So I agree with James's point just now around retail and the reset of retail. Um, there are going to be some that survive this and there are going to be others that don't. I think it's those who do, to James's point, make digital, uh, sorry, the physical an experience, like a retail destination experience. I think those are the brands who then blend what their contactless options are. They're the, one, they're the retailers that will do well and go far. 
Yeah, I think the piece about options is really crucial because, you know, it, it, it has created so many more options for people. And of course, then it comes down to preference. And so knowing your customers and their preferences, I mean, if you go to a restaurant here in New York right now, uh, you sit down and at most places they will ask you, would you like a paper menu or do you want to use the QR code? So it's a matter of preference and being able to kind of facilitate, you know, the best journey and experience for each individual based on what you know about them. And that's going to be really interesting to see how the use of data and kind of, you know, intelligence uh, that we've gained through this pandemic is going to uh, be put to use um, to do that exact thing. I can't wait to see how retail brands make their physical spaces more digitally explorable because they've gotten really good at having great physical environments. They've gotten really good at adapting to what is required because of a pandemic, contactless options and deliveries, et cetera. I'm really excited to see now how they begin to make their physical spaces more digitally explorable. I think that's, that's the next thing. And that's probably a topic we will come back to as we think about 2022 predictions. So, um, something we'll continue the conversation around. Devs, I want to come back to you for the last trend that we'll discuss today, and that's around social. You know, pre-pandemic, social media was sort of, you know, not looked at as favorably, shall we say. It was more frivolous. You know, there was a lot of discussion about was it contributing more to political polarization versus bringing people together. And it sort of seems to be enjoying to some degree a new golden age of conversation and community building. Um, what's your take on what is happening today in social versus where we were pre-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just um, been really interesting to see, you know, we talked about this when we initially launched the, the predictions and social media, without a doubt, has facilitated connection between people throughout the pandemic. So that has been uh, great to see. There are so many different ways in which all the platforms have contributed Contributed to that connection and conversation. Um, you know, we just talked about the vaccine influencer. That's just a, a prime example of how people are voicing, you know, very important opinions and uh, showing support for obviously getting us all back to uh, a better normal than what we've seen in the last, say, year and a half. Um, but what's been really interesting is to look at how different channels have kind of either. Uh, you know, come about or adapted in order to uh, facilitate conversations. And I think one of the channels that we have talked about a lot in that um, in that conversation is is Clubhouse. So Clubhouse, you know, at the start of the pandemic in the early months, uh, was an invite only, uh, audio only app. So that's the first one of its kind. You know, the invites to it were really hot property. Uh, you needed to be invited by a friend, and so quickly became this place where users could access. Uh, exclusive musings of key venture capitalists, tech leaders, and celebrities and such. So, um, however, late last month, we saw that Clubhouse turned into an open house because it actually opened its doors to um, everybody. And, you know, with that, it also begs the question, you know, does it, does taking away that exclusive community that kind of made it, you know, such uh, hot news to begin with, how is that going to change, you know, that vibe of, of community and kind of 
candid conversation that existed there. And of course, um, with that, we've seen some of the major players such as Twitter, um, you know, they launched Spaces, uh, you know, back in December, which is their take on the audio only format, which clearly, um, you know, is very popular now. And then uh, back in June, we saw Facebook launch its audio rooms. So essentially similar to what we've seen across other, you know, apps that were big on community building and conversational aspects, um, you know, think about Snapchat, think about TikTok, we're seeing these formats and particularly the format of audio only and conversational kind of uh, content like that, uh, we're seeing that spread really quickly. And so it's going to be interesting to see how Clubhouse travels over the coming months. Uh, it's definitely one that I have my eyes on. We've seen brands activate against it. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have seen that uh, downloads, the monthly total downloads has gone, gone down significantly. So back in February, um, you know, it was uh, 9.6 million. And if we compare that to May, we're talking 719,000. So uh, that's on a monthly basis. So it's, it's really uh, quite a significant difference. And um, at the same time, you know, engagement remains quite strong. And so Clubhouse has actually released some data saying that, uh, you know, uh, people on average, so the average user spends about an hour per day on the app, um, well, that's compared to 40 minutes on average on YouTube, 28 minutes on Instagram. So that's really interesting to look at that, you know, that kind of quality time spent connecting with others. And so um, we've also seen the platform launch a direct message feature, which, you know, is kind of drifting away from its audio only format that it became famous for. And again, venturing into what we see is, is on the rise across these other channels. So it's kind of all becoming a mishmash. And I think that's just uh, the fascinating part about social is that it's essentially each channel comes to, or I guess rises to fame for its own set of features and functionalities. And then when they take off and they start to become, you know, the preferred format, it kind of essentially becomes the way that we communicate across all channels. And that's what we've seen happen a lot um, in the past year. So um, what's going to be interesting to watch is which of these channels continue to rise and stay um, kind of on their own uh, versus, you know, where, where do we see audiences drop down um, and eventually maybe these channels or platforms disappear as well. James, as we bring this segment to a close, let me turn it to, over to you for the last word, what is the, the one trend or issue that, that you'll be monitoring closely in the home stretch of the year? I think the next few months, there's going to be you know, a big focus on the vaccine rollout. You know, we've talked about the vaccine influencer. We're now seeing a lot of um, organizations, clients of ours all around the world, you know, mandating or, or considering mandating vaccines for employees coming back into the office or onto their shop floors or into their factories or, or warehouses, wherever their business is. I think that's going to be interesting now. And the Vax Influencer isn't just around celebrities and, and social influencers. It's also around captains of industry and leaders in those businesses, you know, influencing their staff to, to get vaccinated. You know, you've got everything from, you know, airlines to, to the, the big tech companies, all the way through to um, restaurants and bars that are, that are now looking at how they mandate their staff to be vaccinated. That's going to leave, particularly in places like the U.S., a significant number of, of people that, that, you know, who aren't planning to be vaccinated, you know, in a difficult situation where they're, where, you know, in, in regards to employment. So that's going to be one that's going to be interesting 
to roll out. I mean, um, ultimately, we've got to put the self and the, the health and well-being of our uh, of people first. So that's going to be important. So you know how how the how business and and society convinces people to get vaccinated in the next um, six months is going to be fascinating because it's really going to be down to convincing people that that aren't convinced now because everyone else uh, they're either have been vaccinated or they're lining up to get vaccinated, you know, in the next uh, few weeks. So um, that's, I think, would be the most interesting part of it, because without um, getting to certain levels of vaccination, we're not going to be able to open up in the way that we all want to open up in different parts of the world. Excellent point. Well, thank you all again for joining us today. And we'd love to have you back in a few months uh, when we're ready to talk about our predictions for 2022. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Now time for the Red Questionnaire. This segment is featured in every episode of the podcast where we ask the same questions to different guests to understand what inspires them and makes them tick. Welcome to the Red Questionnaire segment of the podcast. I'm Ellen Mallory Barnes. Now, traditionally, we have been asking our guests the same questions every month. This month, we're doing things a little differently and introducing some new questions into the mix. And this month, I'm excited that we are joined by Alicia Gibson-Wright. She's an executive vice president at Red Havas Health and You. And she has been with our agency for a little under five years. Alicia, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to just go ahead and jump right in with our Red Questionnaire. Tell me, how would you describe your job to a child? I would describe my job to a child by first asking if they've ever heard of a doctor or if they've ever heard of a nurse. And likely they're going to say yes. And then I would say, well, I tell the stories of the medicine that your doctor and your nurse used to make you feel better. What is the favorite place that you've ever traveled to and why? My favorite destination has to be my trip to India. I went to Bangalore and it was the, I can't even tell you, it was the most exquisite cuisine experience I've ever had in my entire life. It was like curry in the morning, curry in the evening, curry at supper time. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there. <laughs> but really curry for breakfast? Curry for breakfast, like <laughs> hardcore curry, spicy. Like there was, I think there was vindaloo on the breakfast menu. Vindaloo is a very spicy dish. Mm. Yeah, and I did. I, I, I ate it. Yeah. Paid for it later, but I ate it. It was delicious. Do you make your travel choices based on food? I would love to, but sometimes work sends me places that I don't necessarily that aren't necessarily known for their cuisine. But you'd be surprised. There's always something on a menu that you've never had before. And yeah, so I I can I work it I work it both ways. I sometimes if I can. If I'm traveling on my own, I choose for cuisine. But if I'm relegated to go to a certain place, I try to find something unique in the in the food. Mm, I think it's a good strategy. It's definitely a delicious one. <laughs> tell us what is your favorite social media account to follow? Okay, you can't tell anybody, but it's Jason Derulo on TikTok. You know we're recording this, right? Yes, I know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yes, Jason Derulo. He's got a really cute baby and a pretty girlfriend and like the best dance moves ever. And he does all this cool stuff with the food. He he like comes up with, with neat, sweet recipes. Oh, it's a hot tip. Okay. I know. So delicious. 
delicious is the theme of this interview, I think. So true. <laughs> um, that doesn't say anything about me. <laughs> is there a headline grabbing your attention right now? Like if we had to read up on anything this month, which, what is it and why? You know, I, I think um, a trending headline or topic, it's more of a topic. I think it will uh, hopefully be a headline for the next decade or so at least. But it's it's all of the conversation that's happening around health disparities and health inequities, because for so long, having worked in this industry, we noticed it, but we it becomes just a, a back. It comes becomes like white noise. Um, it's a problem. We know it's there. But I feel like over the past year and a half since COVID, um, there's been a lot of conversation about it. And with the George Floyd murder, it, it, there's just been a lot of conversation um, about inequities in general. But now I think as a springboard to that, we see how that plays out too in the health space. And it's a problem that I, I know big companies are really working hard to resolve. So we've become sort of numb to it. And now we're uh, more awake to these problems. And it's a good time to actually pay attention and do something about it before we get um, fall into inertia again. Yeah, absolutely. I think now is the time to act. Um, you, you, you sort of need to strike while the iron is hot when it comes to certain topics like this, because to your point, it becomes inertia and very quickly very quickly because it's just something we're used to doing. And I feel like with big companies um, now really investing in clinical trial recruitment, investing in, um, you know, supporting uh, talented young uh, phys medical physicians and uh, healthcare workers, helping them through their career, or at least establish a, a career, I think is, is something that um, we should all take notice of and continue to beat the drum for. Love that. Thank you for sharing. Solid point. Um, this doesn't feel like a super good segue to the next question, which is less serious, but uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Okay, so I mentioned TikTok and I mentioned Jason Derulo. Okay, but he's only one of like two or 300 others that I like follow on a regular. So I, I think I'm I'm like the old person watching TikTok, uh, but we get so much. I can't say, I don't think I can say old person. Uh, but we get so we get so much pleasure from I get a lot of pleasure from social media and pop culture, all things that are trending and happening. I've got two young children, a tween and a teen. So, you know, my guilty pleasure is trying to keep up with them and make myself feel like I'm a cool mom. So I'll say I'll say I'll leave it at social media is really my guilty, seriously guilty pleasure. And I feel like social media, since you work and communications it's you have to keep up with it it's part of your job okay you're just doing research this this is true i am i am using my real life experience to further my career alicia thank you so much for your time today i've really enjoyed getting to know you and i hope that you have many more guilty pleasures to enjoy in your future oh it's been a pleasure alan so good to to meet you and talk to you Thank you for joining the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas. Please make sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.